Hello and welcome to On Liberty, coming to you live from the Centre for Independent Studies here in Sydney. I'm Glenn Fay, your host for today's episode, filling in for our regular host, Salvatore Babonis. Joining me today to discuss the need to read is Professor Pam Snow from La Trobe University. Pam's a registered psychologist with a background in speech pathology and is one of Australia's leading experts in the area of literacy instruction and in, and in uh, teacher education on that topic. She's also been a longtime ally of the work that we do here at CIS around early reading. Um, and it's real, she's been a real treasure and a real asset to the, to the sector. So it's, I'm really, really pleased to be able to welcome you to, uh, to our live stream program here, Pam. How are you? Glenn, it's lovely to be here. Pam, you didn't start originally in the area of literacy instruction. What brought you there? Um, no, I didn't. And um, typically people of my age and career stage, when they're asked about how they landed somewhere, say something like, well, my career has had a few twists and turns, and that certainly applies to me. Um, so in speech pathology, I worked for many years in acquired brain injury. Um, which is the area that I did my PhD in, uh, which I will say um, first opened my eyes to the whole area of public health thinking, even though I, you know, speech pathology is a very, or was then in particular, a very clinically based um, discipline, but there were patterns that we saw in road trauma rehabilitation that inevitably got me thinking in that broader public health framework. Um, I, I then moved into a, a research fellow role post-PhD because I really wanted to broaden my horizons and be challenged in new ways. And I, I worked as a research fellow in drug and alcohol education and prevention with the Australian Drug Foundation. And that got me interested in the whole notion of adolescent risk and protective factors, um, because obviously that's closely connected to um, uh, drug and alcohol use and misuse. And that led me to be thinking and reading about youth offenders because I wanted to study, you know, the most vulnerable group of adolescents that we could to try and work backwards, I suppose, from there around risk and protective factors. And so I started um, a program of research that um, a bit over 20 years ago, looking at the oral language skills of young people in the justice system, because wearing my speech pathology hat, I could see that there was plenty of research to show that young people in the youth justice system have very weak academic skills. And if there's one thing that characterises their backgrounds, it's poor academic achievement. What our research added was that um, these young people um, have very high rates of undiagnosed, unrecognised language disorders and language difficulties. So that had a whole lot of implications around engagement in the justice process and, and for forensic interviewing and so forth. But it also, for me, um, shone a light on the role of reading and reading skills as a protective factor because young people in the justice system are not a random sample of the population. They're a pre-selected sample. They come from, they're more likely to come from 
crime-prone communities, from families that are characterised by uh, higher levels of chaos and disruption and dysfunction. Uh, a lot of young people enter the youth justice system via the child protection door. Um, and, you know, when I started reading literature about risk and protective factors, I would invariably see at the top of a list of protective factors academic achievement. And then you'd see at the list of at the top of a list of risk factors, academic underachievement. So of course, if you peel that onion, what you land on is reading, because you cannot achieve academically when you can't read, you know, it, sorry, that's just a, um, a blind alley that you end up in when you when you can't read. And I'm not interested in um, children exiting primary school with functional literacy skills. Don't even, you know, get me started on um, what a sellout functional literacy is. Um, so it's not surprising then that we've got this considerable number of boys in particular who get to year three. They're not reading, they, they possibly have some other risk factors in terms of family composition and community factors and intergenerational factors, but school isn't changing their life trajectories if it's not teaching them to read. So the first three years of school, regardless of pedagogical approach, have got a big focus on learning to read, and then it's all about reading to learn. So if you miss the learning to read boat, then the um, the if you miss the learning to read boat, then the reading to learn boat sails before you've even got up in the morning. And teachers are constantly telling me that this is when those so-called problem boys make their appearance felt in the classroom. So then it's all about behaviour management, and these kids are labelled as behaviour problems. They hang around with similarly disaffected peers and then they're in this um, construct that's been referred to in the literature as the school-to-prison pipeline. Yeah. Now, for me, it's really important to remember that we shouldn't be thinking just about literal prisons. That's very important. But we also need to think about the imprisonment of social marginalisation and economic marginalisation because that's not just six months. And, yes, of course, being detained for six months is horrible. Um, but when, when you're illiterate then you are effectively imprisoned outside the social and economic mainstream. Exactly right. So when we talk about that, this threshold of perhaps when people, when those risk factors become much more, much higher, the, and I suppose that probably that opportunity for intervention is, is not capped, but the opportunity for most effective intervention is probably capped to some extent at that uh, learning, learning to read reading to yep. uh, kind of uh, threshold, right? Yeah. What are the sorts of markers we're looking for at that age? And what kind of numbers of students are potentially missing the that that threshold of uh, attainment? Mm. So, so the markers are that children uh, cannot um, look at isolated words by grade three and lift them off the page. Um, yes, reading is all about meaning, but you can't get to the meaning if you can't decode the text. So reading is a code-based activity. English has an unusually um, complex code for novices to master. 
So the, the mother of um, the, the really at-risk children by grade three are those who are highly dependent on predictability of texts and the scaffolding of pictures and who are guessing when they're um, looking at text. Um, so the, uh, the the ones that we're less worried about are the ones who can walk, walk up to an isolated word on the blackboard, the whiteboard, showing my age there, and 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 lift it off, uh, lift it off the book. Who can read environmental print? So they're in the car on the way to school and they're reading signs on trucks and shops, and um, because they're they're not reliant on context, they're they're able to work with the the code. Um, and unfortunately, or realistically, so much of what goes on in classrooms is language and literacy based. So um, that these children are effectively functioning the way you and I function when we go to a country where we don't speak the language, mm -hmm. which means that we're looking around us, trying to figure out what's going on. We're trying to keep up with the play but it's actually very hard to do. So maybe it's easier to horse around a bit, be the class clown, um, to develop an anxiety disorder and um, not want to go to school, school refusal, um, to act out and be aggressive. So th these are children whose mental health um, issues or vulnerabilities really surface when reading skills are weak. Um, but unfortunately, we, we the, the system typically characterises them more as behaviour problems than it does on recognising that there's something really preventable here. Um, and when we look at schools, uh, particularly schools in low SES disadvantaged communities who radically change their approach to early reading instruction, what they see is a radical change in positive behaviour. Um, and a huge drop in referrals to the principal. And, um, you know, I'm thinking here of, uh, if I can name a school, um, this is on the public record, Churchill Primary um, in Gippsland, where they used to have one staff member whose job was almost entirely devoted to managing behaviour issues. Since they've moved to what you might call a science of reading, structured literacy approach, they no longer have that position in the school. So their, their literacy and numeracy data is absolutely being knocked out of the park and their kids are happy and um, much better adjusted. I mean, that, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> what's not to like about um, better social and emotional um, adjustment and better academic achievement? Pam, we, we hosted uh, uh, UK's Behaviour Czar, as, as is known, uh, yep. Tom Bennett here just a few weeks ago, and he was talking about this issue about the amount of time that's lost to teaching mm. that comes from disruptive classrooms yep. and difficulties in managing the room. Yep. Are you saying that much of that is preventable through early reading instruction? Um, I, I would argue that uh, high quality early reading instruction and achievement has a huge contribution to make. Um, complex problems always have complex um, uh, inputs and require complex responses. But um, high quality early reading instruction is, you know, it's paradoxically 
low-hanging fruit, but it does seem like um, a bridge too far for some schools. But the schools that really grasp that nettle, like Churchill Primary and a number of other schools have, see over a two to three year period, sometimes a bit longer, you know, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint, but they will see um, that broader level change in student wellbeing. And, and there's good evidence to show that um, there's a high coalescence between mental health problems and reading difficulties. And I emphasise when I talk about mental health problems that we need to remember that that's internalising problems like anxiety and depression. It's also externalising problems, acting out, aggression, conduct disorder. Sometimes we're a little bit tempted to think about anxiety and depression over here as mental health problems and then behaviour problems over there um, as something separate. But if you look at, um, you know, like it or love it, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM, of the American Psychiatric Association, it puts all of those things under that umbrella of mental health problems. So it's not normal for kids to be acting out, to be hitting, to being rude. You know, th those are uh, responses to distress. Um, and they're, they're flags of dysfunction in, in the child's well-being. And teachers, of course, know that um, those, those problems hang around together. The poor readers are often, not always, but often the ones who also have these adjustment difficulties. One of the issues that, the, that here at the CIS that we've championed for many years was the introduction of a phonics screening check in mm -hmm. school from year one. Yep. in part to identify students at high risk, as, as you've described. That hasn't been popular with everybody. Mm. Um, why is that, despite the evidence that you've just cited to us? Mm. And you said it's a, it's a marathon rather than a sprint, but as far as I understand, there's already some demonstrable indicative results coming out of phonics screening checks that suggest that that is quite a cost-effective um, approach to implement. Mm. Yes, it is, but it's not a one-trick pony. So a, a phonics screening check, in my view, needs to be part of a coherent approach to reading instruction. So you can't tack a phonics screening check on, uh, or I don't think it's particularly helpful, to be um, taking a balanced literacy approach and then doing a phonics screening check. That's like saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to eat whatever I want from the buffet every day and I'm not going to do any exercise and I'm going to smoke and I'm going to drink too much, but I'll get my cholesterol checked. Um, so, and, and then we say, well, you know, cholesterol screening doesn't do a very good job because look at all these people who've been screened um, and they've still got high cholesterol. So um, a phonics screening check is, as the word indicates, screening. It's not diagnostic. It's an early warning system, really, to tell us whether a, a, a critical level of capacity is being achieved by you know typically halfway through the second year of school but that the children are more likely to reach that criterion if they're receiving a particular kind of reading instruction so when a phonics screening check is part of that bundle of healthy diet exercise you know all, all the other things that we want to see in place 
um, then it, it, it's incredibly valuable feedback for teachers. So in, in a nutshell for, for our audience, what is it that uh, identifies or distinguishes really good early reading instruction compared yep. to that that's maybe only useful for some learners or perhaps not effective at all? Well, I think the starting point needs to be teacher knowledge and it makes me very angry that um, there's a body of knowledge about the cognitive science underlying what the reading process is and how best to take children from novice to expert, for want of a better word, on something that we humans haven't been biologically primed in an evolutionary sense to do. So we need to remember it's not a biologically primary thing for us. So there's a huge body of knowledge that, you know, I, I think has been willfully will, withheld from teachers and, and there's a, a range of ideological, epistemological reasons for that. But I regard that body of knowledge as being teachers' family china. And it makes me very cross when I go into a school to discover that the person in that school who knows the most about reading is not actually a teacher. It's a member of some other profession. It might be a speech pathologist or it might be an educational and developmental psychologist. When I go into a school, I want to know that the people who are really knowledgeable about reading and the science of reading and the teaching of reading are teachers because that's their family china. Um, so I want to start with knowledge and then we can um, align practice to that knowledge and, un and, and an understanding of um, theoretical frameworks like the simple view of reading. There are other frameworks, but that's a really good place for teachers to start and to understand um, that there, there is a code, that the skill of decoding has to be mastered. It's non-negotiable, but all of us have to learn to decode text and we can decode something that we can't understand, but we can't understand something that we can't decode. So if we don't have that essential set of skills early, and, you know, I'd, I'd say, you know, just get it out of the way efficiently um, so that we can do that deeper dive into literature, into, you know, beautiful children's books, the world of imagination and knowledge and inferencing and, um, you know, all the things that we want children's engagement with text to be all about. Um, so teacher knowledge and um, practice that is guided by a scope and sequence and knowledge of the history, a little bit of knowledge about the history of the English language and how we got the orthographic system that we have goes a long way. I see so many light bulb moments for teachers when they learn just a little bit about the history of English and the fact that this language that we call English really didn't originate in that place that we call England at all. And when you understand that and understand where our spelling patterns come from, um, but, you know, again, I just see this as knowledge that has to belong to teachers. It can't be secret business for other disciplines. So I've often heard that, that, um, that teachers should don't need to know the science of learning because their practitioners and at the end of the day, teaching is more art than science. Mm. Why should teachers have a fundamental understanding of mm. the science of learning? Mm. 
Well, you know, do we want medical practitioners to have an understanding of physiology um, in their clinical reasoning, in their decision-making, in their appraisal of new medications and treatment approaches? Um, I think we dumb teaching down uh, and do it a great disservice when we talk about it as simply being an art um, because, well, then why, why do kids need to go to school um, and why, why do teachers need to go to university to learn to be teachers? Most professions are some kind of meld and marriage of theory and practice, you know, whether that's engineering, medicine, psychology, nursing. And as I say, I, I just think we do teaching a huge disservice when we don't talk about that high level of public accountability that, that goes with, that, that is professionalism, really. Um, you know, other professions, when they talk about professionalism, they're, they're talking about um, being open to the scrutiny of, um, of their patients, consumers, clients, um, and, and, and education needs to have the same footing, in my view. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, for for re CIS readers, will, will be aware that um, that we've published several papers over the over the last twelve months, including from uh, Emeritus Professor John Sweller and and also Professor David Geary, that that point out some of those some of the the under, I think in a in a really digestible and accessible way for anyone interested in education, especially teachers, to understand that that biologically primary and secondary process, mm -hmm. how that impacts upon the way that we then uh, learn things generally, but especially when mm. in the school classroom. So I would certainly direct viewers there as well. But, but Pam, we're often told as well here that uh, things like uh, the kind of instruction you've highlighted, wouldn't it just be easier to get everyone interested? In, kids are naturally interested in reading, right? Mm -hmm. So if they were just mm -hmm. more interested, then that would mm -hmm surely flow through to doing better at reading in the same mm. way we're told this is you hear there's a lot in the study of maths that mm. all we need to do is make maths more interesting and if you do that um the the learning will just follow mm. is that a flawed assumption well i i believe it is a flawed assumption because we're talking about something that's biologically secondary biologically unnatural it has um, it, its own um, complexity around the, the code, the fact that written text isn't just spoken language written down. It, it is its own genre that has its own conventions. But we don't expect children to learn to play the piano by um, listening to lots of Mozart sonatas or even having a resident pianist in their home and having a piano in their home and allowing them to bang around at the piano as kids love doing you know let, put a, a young child in front of a piano and they'll, they'll bang around but it won't sound very musical teach them about the fact that there is a system on the printed music notation 
that aligns with um, the keys in front of them and suddenly you see that things start to become a bit more meaningful and um, in, I would also say enjoyable. Um, you know, we all love the, the satisfaction of achievement and aha moments. So, um, you know, if, if it doesn't work for teaching music, then I would say it wouldn't work for teaching reading either. Yes. Um... Pam, just to, to take James's question that, that's come into the chat window, as I think what he's getting at is, is there an issue about, is English, well, I think I'll, I'm going to take it a few directions. Is the English language just harder to pick up compared to other languages? Um, um, well, if you can go with that, we'll, um, yeah. we'll, we'll go from there. Um, I'm assuming that that question refers to the English written text, not spoken language. Um, the, our writing system is more opaque, if you like, than many other writing systems because English is such a melting pot of, um, you know, early Nordic, Anglo-Saxon, French, Latin, Greek, you know, you know, they're the main ones, but there are a lot of others, other words and spellings as well that we've incorporated. So... English has been a bowerbird, um, and so and when those words have been incorporated, you know, we use the term borrowed into English. We've also, in most cases, incorporated and borrowed the spellings that come from those languages. So on first blush, it can make it look like it's not um, particularly systematic, but it is actually a highly um, rule-governed, pattern-governed language when you understand something about etymology and the history of English and in fact overlaying that history in how we teach children about their writing system I think is profoundly helpful and useful obviously that um, extends a lot of teachers because they themselves didn't learn this when they were at school and they didn't learn it at university but the willingness and appetite on the part of teachers to get on board with using etymology and morphology, for example, is really encouraging. I'm seeing very strong evidence of that. So yes, we've got a writing system that's not like Italian or Spanish or Finnish. It's it's not completely transparent, um, but uh, but it's also not random. Um, and we do our students and our teachers and the language itself a big disservice when we say, ah, oh, well, that's just English, um, or it's too hard to teach spelling properly in English, you know, spelling's got to be caught, not taught, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of myths around the nature of the English writing system. Uh, well, a lot of parents perhaps that, are, that, that view this or, or, or supervise children at home will we're familiar with sight word packs mm. that come. Mm. What's, are these helpful for all students to learn? Look, um, le learning how to read the sight words way is taxing our children's visual memory systems. So it's um, in very simple terms, it's asking the right hemisphere to take responsibility for learning how to read. But it's the left hemisphere, the language hemisphere that has evolved for language that needs to be repurposed for reading, that needs to be taught how to make, make connections between phonemes and graphemes. So the right hemisphere will 
saying, yeah, you know, this isn't really my job. I'll, I'll do the best that I can, but there's going to be some limitations here because I'm not going to be able to remember, um, you know, the, the 60,000 words, you know, ultimately that this child's going to be uh, going to have to be able to read. I'm also not going to be able to help you with decoding unfamiliar words, the right hemisphere will say, because I only do things in holes. Um, so, so a small number of um, what we might call sight words, words that we're going to teach children up front, but we can still talk to children about those words at a sublexical level. We can still um, discuss the composition of those words. If we're teaching um, in a structured explicit way using systematic synthetic phonics and decodable phonically controlled texts, then having a small handful of words like I and thee and my um, that are the glue, the mortar in sentences will help with fluency and automaticity. Um, but we need to teach transferable skills when we're teaching reading. And when we're teaching banks of sight words, we're not teaching a transferable skill for reading and we're not nudging the left hemisphere to come into play and be forming those phoneme grapheme links that are critically important for understanding how the code works. We don't have much time left, but one, one point that you've highlighted throughout is that teachers don't necessarily have the knowledge that we would hope for in the classroom. How can it be that after after the kind of evidence that you've cited and the explanations you've provided, how can it be that so many teachers still don't have the knowledge needed to be able to effectively do this in the classroom? Mm. I think going back to the 70s and 80s, um, a series of events were set in train when we followed the USA, you know, somewhat blindly because of the zeitgeist at the time of, of down the, the whole language path. We threw out a lot of um, explicit teaching, um, you know, we threw out things that were seen to be teacher-centred and we wanted children to construct their own knowledge and understanding. So we now have a teaching workforce who themselves came through whole language classrooms. Many of our education academics came through whole language classrooms. So, you know, we unfortunately put this rich body of knowledge and practice out on the nature strip with a sign on it saying, please take, you know, we, we don't need this stuff anymore. Um, and, um, and there were, you know, ideologies and belief systems that have grown up in education faculties about um, you know multiple forms of literacy and it's not fashionable to talk about reading you know we, we talk about this kind of literacy and that kind of literacy but you can't be digitally literate whatever that is if you can't read um, so um, you know I, I think really when when we took that turn back in the 70s and 80s we created a whole lot of unintended consequences that are now very difficult to turn around. Um, it's it's we're turning around an ocean liner in choppy seas, and yes, I think we're making progress on that, but it's uh, it's decades work, I think. Well, on that note, then um, very quickly for our audience, what is it that your current work involves? The Science of Language and Reading Lab down at um, La Trobe. 
What's yep. the kind of work you're doing there in remedying this problem? <laughs> well, one of the key things that we're doing is running online short courses for teachers, and we've been thrilled with the uptake of those short courses and the response to those short courses. The next introductory program, if I can um, shamelessly promote that for 10 seconds, um, starts in July. And I just saw the numbers today that we've got more than 800 people registered for that. And I think that's that'll be about the fifth uh, time that we've run that one. We've also got an intermediate program and a program for secondary teachers, which is also going to be running uh, it's, uh, September, October. We've started a language and literacy specialisation in the Latrobe Masters of Education, uh, which is also, uh, so that's literally just started this year and we've had 40 teachers enrol in that and uh, we're getting very positive feedback and that's fully online, very positive feedback about that. And we're also building this content into Latrobe pre-service um, initial teacher education. So we think this is, um, over the long haul, this is gonna be a real point of difference uh, for La Trobe graduates. Fantastic news. Pam, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for being able to join us here. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Glenn. And thanks for all of you that have joined us online as well. And that was episode 94 of On Liberty. We're not here next week. We're now a fortnightly program. But on the 20th of this month, I'll be joined here in the chair again, and I'll be joined by Peter Gregory. He's the author of the CIS paper, Township Leasing and the Democratization of Opportunity. I hope to see you again then soon or here at CIS. Thank you so much.